What's up, guys? Mitch from RespectMyRegion.com, back with another episode of the RMR Podcast. Today, I'm joined by special guests, Tim and Taylor, producers and founders of the Emerald Cup. How are you guys doing today? Great today. Thanks. Uh, doing good. So nice to be here. Awesome, man. So I kick these off with usually everyone's introduction or their origin story around the plant. Some people make it personal. Some people make it professional. Some people do a little bit of both. Whatever you guys are comfortable in being vulnerable with. Um, Taylor, because you're sitting right right next to me on the stream and pointing over there. We'll, we'll start with you, and then we'll work our way down to Tim. But I'd love to just know your origin story around the plant and the plant we're talking about today is cannabis. <laughs> well, actually. Actually, funny story, my origin story kind of starts with this beneath me um, because as um, a child of someone who's been in the industry my entire life, um, I've had the joy of growing up around cannabis. So um, I have been um, with the Emerald Cup specifically since uh, 2007. 2007 was my first Emerald Cup. But um, that same year also ended up happening to be my first uh outdoor farm grow. So it was my first year growing, my first Emerald Cup. And then that really kicked off a love of not only the plant, but also um, the event itself. It's it, The Emerald Cup is a, is, a, is a vision that Tim had as just a beginning of a, a, a friendly competition amongst um, his friends in Northern California. He will go more into that story. But um, I was just so enamored by the event and the community as a whole. And so since 2007, I've been um, in the industry more professionally, but since birth has <laughs> been my origin story. What about yourself, Tim? Well, I'm 65. I started uh, smoking cannabis when I was 12 years old. I started dealing when I was 14. So I've basically been a dealer outlaw for over five decades. Uh, I grew up when they were bringing in uh, large amounts of the Thai and Mexican hash from all over the world. I worked under the biggest dealers in Santa Cruz uh, through uh, the 70s and into the 80s. Used to get up to 5,000 pounds of tie at a time. Um, watched the private prisons get built and the private prison system, the minimum mandatories that really changed the industry. Watched the beginning of indoor come in. I can tell you how it all started. Uh, into the 90s when we all moved up into the triangle and started doing large indoor grows. Uh, I think my largest was about 115 lights I had running up there. and. Uh, then uh, into the early 2000s when we started the Emerald Cup, you know, uh, 2004, 18 years ago, just wanting to uh, to really have that friendly competition and celebration of the fall harvest. People thought we'd get arrested. We were lucky, pulled it off. We had one flowers entry. Our competition at the time were 43 competitions now. Uh, evolved into the legal side, helping the first uh, sheriff's debates and the district attorney debates in the country. And then the 9.31 program for uh, 99 plants to be able to legally grow with the sheriff's permit under Tom Allman. And uh, boy, watched the Emerald Cup over these years evolve to, like I said, where it is now, 30,000 people on the show with my daughter uh, co-producing it and overseeing the contest and uh, really being side by side with me over all these years. That's amazing. And I, I think what's unique about that is, is the origin around the Emerald Cup is, like you said, it, was a, it started out as a friendly competition among growers that are, are from the same region. You know, so many things we've seen over the last few years with cups and contests being fueled by obviously monetization, but then there's that, that, that push and pull of who's the best and not always in a friendly way. So I think that's a very unique thing to celebrate the culture. So if you could talk a little bit about that, like what, what was the friendly competition? Is it, is it really like, who's got the best? Is it kind of celebrating everyone? What was kind of the, the inspiration behind a, a cup? 
Well, that's what it was back then. Uh, people just, I mean, gosh, we were just getting into all the strain names. I mean, it was just chem dog and the OG was coming in, uh, but it wasn't like it is now with 300 different strains and the hypes and stuff. So uh, it was really about just who was growing the finest and it was a friendly competition. That's evolved into a very serious competition over the years. Uh, really started, I, we were talking on the, in an earlier, uh, you know, interview about Leo and aficionado uh, winning with, uh, you know, 2012. And when that came in and all of a sudden his genetics popped up to $50 a seed and people saw the real value uh, commercially of winning the cup. And then we moved to Santa Rosa in 20, uh, boy, it was like eight years ago, right after that. Um, it became even larger and it just became something that all the brands came out with legalization. It's become very serious. And now uh, connected, you know, I got a $20 million deal for winning the indoor last year. So it's become something that really matters for the brands and it's become serious. We do have the personal uh, contest, which we're really happy to have in there again on the flowers and now on the concentrates because it really, you know, nice to have that friendly contest, but this is a serious competition mm -hmm. now where it means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you guys are one of, you know, if, if not the most, I mean, from my opinion, one of the, one of the most, if not the most reputable, you know, cups or contests in, in the, in the world when it comes to cannabis. And so that's obviously people get competitive. They want to get that title. It's, it's, it's begun. It's it not just begun. It's been a while that it's meant a lot for people. Um, what have you guys done to just ensure you know, anytime you do any sort of contest or label anything is the best, and I know this because we put a lot of content out in the same regard, what do you do to kind of combat bias? Because anytime you do any sort of contest, there's winners, there's losers, people, everyone thinks there's the best. What do you guys do to combat, you know, the potential of bias or people crying things are foul? Well, one of the biggest things um, that I think is the most interesting part about the flower has been blind so the, all the judges receive is just a flower in a jar with a number on it they don't know the strain name they don't know the company they just know the flower and so that really speaks to so much of what people really in that year um, because they don't know anything else about the flower so just had the flower speaks for itself and we've um, had the solventless competition as well be blind and we are super excited to have the hydrocarbon carbon category as well be blind because um, it's inherent personal biases that we just want to avoid and, and, and make sure that the contest is as legitimate as it possibly can be. And that's something that we're so proud of for the, especially the flower competition, which is what it's always been about is that the competition has always been blind. And then selecting judges. I know you guys have a unique and a, uh, I, th I believe, pretty strenuous process of, of selecting the right judges. What does that process usually look like? Well, well back in the day, it was, uh, it was simple. You just found the people that could smoke the most and your friends and just bring them in. All the people that could hit that OG all day long. Uh, over the years, uh, with 43 contests and uh, all these uh, different qualifications for judges and really trying to make sure that we get a real balance between North and South and women and men and everybody in there, it's become quite a process. And Taylor can go into that. She really oversees that process, but it's, it's very complicated nowadays. We have included a judge's application process that's relatively new in the, in the past few years because we used to just do like references and uh, we always change up the judges every single year. We do have some re returning judges and then we always have like a new set as well that we try to just keep the opinions fresh the um, and the and the perspectives. I think it always kind of adds to have new people on. And so this year, like Tim said, we have almost from all over the state of California. Um, some are just through the application process. So we've never met them. Uh, they just applied and had a great 
state applications. So we expected them to be a judge, and then some of them are uh, turning favorites that we've had a long time. So it's it's always a very fun process of picking the judges, but the judging is such it's such a job, and I think that that's something that judges always find very shocking is that they're like oh I love to be a judge and we're like okay great here is uh 500 grams we need you to smoke all of these and give us notes and scores and um and be competent while we're doing these judging meetings and so uh that's the one big uh preliminary aspect of all judges that we select is that they have to have moderately high tolerances um just to make sure that they are fully capable of doing their judging duties so <laughs> Absolutely. What and what is what is some of the feedback? Have you guys? I'm sure you guys have worked with some guys, some some guys and gals that have quite heavy lungs on them. Do you guys ever hear people be like, "Man, it was it was a it was a journey trying to smoke through all these samples." You know, yes. I had a kid that I had a kid that was a beast, uh, major dealer up in Humboldt. Uh, he could outsmoke anybody. He thought, and he came in uh, to judge with us one year. This is about you know almost you know ten years ago. And by the time the contest was over. Uh, he sat down. He said, "You know, I got to give Swami and Nikki and all you old people props because you buried me. You put me under the table trying to keep up with you guys. Because, like Taylor said, it's not just smoking all that. It's actually thinking intellectually. Okay, what mm -hmm. is this doing to me? What's happening? How is this? You know, how can I convey this? And so it becomes a very challenging process across the board. And so, uh, you know, we can talk about last year too, Taylor. Uh, some of the judges uh, what they went through." <laughs> Like I feel like I know. Maybe there's some maybe a few naps that had to happen throughout the day in one of our college <laughs> meetings. Um, but it, the thing is, it's it's all about uh, making sure that everybody it feels great about the the final winners. So um, we do as many meetings as possible. It is not just like a put in your score and then that's how the winners are all. Are all chosen all of our judging teams have four as the baseline to get the entries into like the final discussion piece and then all of them kind of have a discussion around the order and making sure that all of the judges are the um about the selection of the winners i love that i love that it's unique to to take a look at the baseline blind scores and then to come together as a community because i know it doesn't matter what, you know, I, I do a lot of music. When you're picking music, when you're picking whatever, you have your idea and then sometimes bringing in community can help. It's not like your your experience or your preference change, but someone just jolts like, oh yeah, that is, I'm, I'm not thinking about it. You know, it changes the perspective a little bit. That's awesome. What? So you guys, you know, anytime you name the best, it is it, it can be subjective, right? When we are measuring something like a THC potency, that's a, a number, a metric, even though there's some quite a bit of variance in that regard. But there's certain things that have like a hard, you know, you can measure. But when we're talking about the best, it is can be subjective. So for you guys, what do you feel like are some of those components that make something the best when it comes to flour? Well, it started out a long time ago. It was pretty much the fuels. You know, if you weren't bringing a heavy duty OG or something in, you know, you weren't going to really make it to the top. Over the years, uh, you know, we had the black lime reserve come in, the cherry limeade, we had the, you know, the, the pines, pineapple, and it became that our, our judges were looking for unique cultivars, a unique cam, uh, cannabinoid terpene profile set. And so it's really a, a tribute to them that the, the highest THC has never won the Emerald Cup and that they're looking for something very unique. And, uh, and so that in that way, we're really the trendsetters for what people can uh, really look for for themselves. Because if you go into the dispensaries, everybody's looking for the highest THC, but that's really, really not what our judges are looking for. They're looking for something that, yeah, of course, gets them really high, but also has uh, unique characteristics. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. 
It's all about the terpenes. And and <laughs> and with that, with all of these new strains that are getting getting put out, I, I love that you guys do it blind, where you're not listing the strain name, you're not looking at the crazy lineage of genetics, where you might have a bias of like, oh, I really, I know I like this 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 profile because I've heard from breeders sometimes one of the hardest parts of when you're when you're hunting for phenos is when you know the genetics and you have this subconscious bias where you want something to win because you like the genetics so much and you're unable to kind of that, that clouds your vision so i like that you guys are just looking at it blindly for for what it is that's definitely a unique take they all have unique you know our endocannabinoid systems are unique to ourselves so what you know interests me might not be what interests you like i love an osamine strain that is always like whenever i hear even the words osamine i'm like that's that's the one i want to try so i i know that that is a terpene that my body in particularly like reacts well with and like i love that and so that's one of the things when we looked at, um, you know, hashing, have the judging metric because we do terpene tests on everything. So we try to sort everything. So it's like similar to what the judges are looking at is like the similar field of like what those entries entail. So you could judge like a fuel with a fuel or a fruit with a fruit, sort of like those mm -hmm. kind of um, d distinguishments. And then, you know, for you guys, what, you know, obviously, a lot of what you highlight, it's in the name, you know, Emerald, Emerald Cup, Emerald Triangle is a very historic Appalachian area for, for cannabis, um, the history, the culture, the community. What is the importance to you guys in preserving just legacy farmers and just the Emerald, the, the culture and what has been set in place from the Emerald Triangle? Like, what is the importance of making sure that's preserved through legalization and the commercialization of this plant? Well, it's critical. Uh, the Emerald Triangle really uh, has been the pioneer for the last several decades, uh, as we've seen. People from all over Europe and all over the country come and find the genetics. Uh, they find out what we're looking for, what the best flowers are. Our small farmers out there and legacy farmers, you know, battled the cops and did 10, 20, 30 year prison sentences. Some people are still in jail for all that. And for all that effort and work and sacrifice, uh, they really deserve their, their acknowledgments. Uh, it's a very challenging industry now because as we go more and more commercial, uh, so many of them are being driven out of the business with the challenges of legalization and the price reductions and whatnot. Uh, we really help the small farmers as much as possible. This year we did a lottery system where we gave uh, over 40 small farmers free entry into the cup to help them out. We're doing a lottery system this year to give free entries to some of the small farmers. And uh, you know, that's where my heart is. I've been a small farmer up there in those mountains uh, for the last 40 years and uh, I'm with it. You know, that's our community. Those are our brothers and sisters. And uh, it's really heartbreaking to see the challenges they're going through and we need to do everything we can to sustain and support them. Um, we really need you know, to go from 1000 retail shops to 10,000 like we had before. So there'd be a lot of diversity and a lot of competition, and a lot of access for people. And we need to get federal legalization in there and interstate so that the Emerald Triangle brands and brands around the state in general have a better shot at competing across the country. So it's an uphill battle for us, but we're doing everything we can. And with that in mind, that's why we went to L.A., because we knew that that was the best place for our contestants and for our vendors to be was in the biggest cannabis market in the world, which is L.A. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you look at, you know, the, the community, the, the history and, you know, the culture in certain regards is it, that's from NorCal. Like that's the birthplace for a lot of that. But then when we look at pop culture or what is turning into be what people, like you said, look to 
in terms of just sheer market size, the celebrity influence or eyeballs or just population, LA is is the hub of kind of cannabis culture at this point. Um, so what's what's I, I'm that's a great thing that you guys are doing and 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 bridging those gaps. So what is the I guess the the importance and you I mean you touched on it there, but expand on that the importance of bridging those gaps between SoCal and NorCal. Want to jump, Taylor. I always try to give my daughter room in there. Otherwise, I talk all the time. <laughs> no, you good. You good. You take this one because you got the first one. Well, you know, uh, Southern California, they've, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, perps up north and OG down south, you know, so there's always been a little, little difference, a little, you know, friendly competition of what's going on. There's no doubt about it. You know, LA is the largest cannabis market in the world. It's going to be that for some time to come. It's also the largest media market in the world. So for our Northern California and the small brands around the state, that's what they need to get into and in front of uh, are the people in LA. And we really need to break down those barriers of people looking for just the highest THC and really looking at these unique cultivars that people grow in our hills and are all over the state so that they can start finding like, you know, tropical slaylight by, by, by Mark Greenshock uh, and different things, you know, um, that people grow up in these mountains that are unique. And so that's why we've separated the uh, flower entries into the terpene profiles. We're really educating people about that. And it's really about through education that we can get people to really look for something that really works for themselves, because that's really what it is. Everybody has their own cannabinoid system that calls out for something specific. And some people are into more of a terpenoline or an osamine or the fruits, the desserts, the, you know, the gases. And it's just what your own you know, calling is rather than going into the store and just looking for the highest THC for the cheapest buck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. I yeah, think and just to add one thing, I would add is just that California is such a big state. It is is quite large, and so um, when we did move the Emerald Cup out of the Emerald Triangle, it was definitely more of a move to make it a statewide. Comp. So I think, I think uh, it's just for us to move to Los Angeles and really be the bridge builder between the North and the South. Yeah, when we moved uh, to Santa Rosa years ago, people thought we were abandoning the Triangle, but uh, we talked about it as soon as they saw what the reception was and how much business they got done, they were very happy to come back the second year with us. And it's the same thing with LA. All of our vendors know it's gonna be good for them. All the contestants know how good it's gonna be for them down there. And it really is bridging, like Taylor said, the North and the South. We're one community. California is gonna stand against the rest of the states and the country and the world as we legalize cannabis federally and across the, the world. And so it's, it behooves us to all become uh, one community, which is what we really wanna do. I love that Cal California versus the world, man. When That's it comes right. to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it comes to this cannabis, no, and that and that's just I think that's important to know, and I like that because you you saw a little bit of the pushback, but you guys saw the vision of what this meant in its entirety of bringing it, you know, going to where the people are, and then you know I, I think it's worth noting, you know, the the last two years and some change or whatever we're we're at right now have been very difficult for not just events but gathering people getting people to travel. I mean, there's been so much of that, but with, with the, with the harvest ball, some of these things we recently saw some pretty crazy turnouts. Can you guys speak to kind of the Testament of, of, is that kind of the growth of the industry or is it seeing so many people kind of just been condensed at home for so long and we're opening up a little bit, or, or is it just the excitement or the growth of this industry? You going to jump? Okay. Well, I, Go <laughs> I was just I think I think that with the harvest ball, it was um, you know it was so 
in 2020, when we did not have an in-person event, it really just hit us all that like the Emerald Cup is more than just like a, a event about cannabis. It really is like the reunion of so many people in the industry. It is like uh, experience new and, and I love other cannabis events. I've traveled to many of them and, and there's so many ones that are so great in their own way, but the Emerald Cup in particular and this last Harvest Bowl which was an extension of the Emerald Cup just without the awards, really is this like reunion of not only just Northern California, but a worldwide community of cannabis people that are just about like legacy brands. They're about the culture. They're about like this like unpretentious part of the industry that's just like about the plant. And so I think that not having the event in 2020 was really this like sad realization where we're like, oh, so I guess we're just not going to see this whole group of people this year. Yeah. Um, so this last year with the Harvest Ball, that was the thing I think that just like warmed our hearts the most was just seeing the turnout, given all the craziness that's going on in the world and I know it's super easy to stay at home I become body myself so as Tim kind of and we are usually big travelers so we understand what it's like to want to just stay at home but a lot of people turned out and it's cool to see the community show up well yeah I mean a couple of years back you had not only the Emerald Cup but you had chalice going on you had high mm -hmm. times there were multiple events all over the state and we need those we need as many events as possible so people were getting quite a few opportunities to get out and see people. Now that that's all been shut down, high times are pretty much gone, chalice is gone. Uh, people were really looking forward to the Emerald Cup. And with COVID and with the economy and with the small farmers being really crushed, we had actually thought about canceling the Harvest Ball, but so many people asked us to just go forward because they really needed that event to get together and celebrate and mourn and just reminisce. And so we were really glad. I had dozens of people coming up to me and thanking me for doing that. Uh, we're gonna continue that on in some form, probably just as a market next year. And then we'll really uh, take LA by storm the following year, 2023, with a very large show. So we're really looking forward to that. Taylor, I think you're like me. You move around so much. I think if you keep your hands down, you won't. You kind of got a little clicking or a little noise coming. So if you kind of don't move as much, you won't have that sound coming in. But this is the best part about working with your dad is that you get to have like the 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 coworker <laughs> slash stage boss, you know, where he's like <laughs> talking. Like, Stand up with your shoulders, but I do appreciate hey, don't, the feedback. Don't, to, yeah, I'll but Taylor, don't, hey, come on. This has changed where I used to totally dominate her, and uh, that I was the guy, and she was the the beginner apprentice. And now it's balanced out to where, in many meetings, if you're on our show, our cup calls, uh, you'll see her uh, taking the lead and not putting me in my place. But she she I used to always laugh about her growing her alpha tail so she can really come into her own. And she's truly, she's truly done that. And uh, so we have a really great relationship and it's very balanced. That's, that's unique. You know, you multiple gen generations within cannabis and that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's what a lot of this, a lot of this has to do. And it's amazing to see, you know, this industry turn into legal and allow us to speak about this and have platforms that reach more people. Um, and I appreciate you guys sharing that too. It's, it's awesome to see that, 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 that family dynamic. Uh, people like it. You know what? People really like that. Uh, they, they like to see families and stories and, uh, you know, the synergy, you know, the, the real life stuff. And so uh, that friendly interplay that Taylor and I have uh, on interviews and in our meetings and at the show and stuff, uh, it really has become something that people have gotten used to and they've been accustomed to and they like it a lot. So um, I, I applaud it. You know, having my daughter there and my nephew, Chad. And so many other family members that have been involved over the years. It's really uh, touching to see it carry on. I'm looking forward to my grandkids being there right behind them. That's awesome. And so take, 
taking it back to the the harvest ball you got there was a a big integration or activation with with cookies which i've you know got quite a bit of hype they brought they're obviously one of the biggest brands if not the biggest brand in recreational cannabis um and they bring a lot of attention some of that you know they get a little bit of that reputation sometimes or the feedback whereas big is bad it's corporate but to see them coming back something like what you guys have going on which is strictly community and culture you know you can't question that in any regards um from what i heard i wasn't able to attend i had to fly back home to seattle after a hall of flowers but some of my team went up got got up there and i know a lot of people that attended they they said that some people were a little weary of that but they said it seemed to do really well so i'm just curious if you guys can speak on kind of that connection with cookies and and was how authentic it felt for them to to come in and embrace and provide some platform to what you guys are going on and, and to highlight you know small craft farmers up there Look, I've known Burner for uh, almost a couple decades now. I've watched him from the very beginning. This is a, a wonderful gentleman that's been part of our industry. Just because he became very successful with cookies doesn't make him a bad guy. Uh, just like Dennis Hunter uh, with Canacraft, who's an old school outlaw, and now he's made it big with Canacraft. I mean, it doesn't take away who they are. They're part of the community, part of the street. Uh, Burner and Cookies have been a tremendous success story, and my hat's off to them. And by them coming in and working with us, it gives us the ability to support small farmers. So in some ways, you know, that that large sponsor, like the Cookies, uh, gives us the chance to support as many small farmers as possible. So uh, we're honored to have Cookies with us uh, moving forward. And uh, I really love Burner and what he's done. And so I wish nothing but the best for them. Absolutely. Their booth was beautiful. They had that um, similar set, sort of setup as well in 2019. And um, we did a, a merch collab with them this year. And I think that there was a tagline that we put on that that was legacies grow together, which I think is mm. also a really good sort of summary of like how we view them just as they view us where I think we're all on the same team and, and they have they have a, a, a great brand. Yeah, there's that unique. I can't remember what it's called. There's like this psychological phenomenon that's it's, it's often oh. put into sports where you like root for the underdog, and then the moment they become the Yankees or the Patriots, then it's like everybody hates them. You know, you root for yep. them and to win, and then once they start winning, everybody wants to come for the crown and and hates them. And I think we see a similar thing happen. Uh -huh. It's a phenomenon that happens everywhere. Yeah. I go back to the 49ers when they were the underdogs and everybody loved them. And then when they won several Super Bowls, they became the one that everybody wanted to knock off. So it happens in sports, absolutely. And it, it happens in uh, every business. Uh, so they've been very successful. So, uh, you know, everybody would like to be them, I'm sure. And I think it's it's inevitable, you know, it's obviously inevitable as cannabis turns legal and turns into a commodity, a consumer good, that you're going to see mega companies come in. You know, some people are going to be there for the wrong reasons and be inauthentic simply for the money. And some people are just going to have happened to blossom from the culture and, you know, build a skyscraper size business. It's going to happen. Um, and so. I think it's weird when some people have that mindset where, you know, they want to hold on to this past that's, you know, inevitably not going to be there anymore. And we see a lot of that. I think it's important. And I love your guys' platform because I think aligning with someone like Cookies and even what you just said, Tim, it's like growing from truly the roots are rooted in the culture and the community, but growing as this industry grows rather than viewing that as some threat. You know, it's not like you're joining a cult or joining the bad guys, but it's like, you know, as a company grows, as if companies become successful, they get more revenue and revenue can be 
you know, invested back into communities. It can help grow. It can help education. There are good things that can come from money. Um, so I, I love how you put that uh, just, just around that partnership. Well, you look at our partnership with Green Street going down into L.A. with Rama. Okay, they've uh, he and Josh have built a $65 million complex down there. It's going to be the first really truly first class cannabis complex in the world. It's, you know, seven, eight stories, first class Michelin, you know, rated, you know, restaurant in there. And it's great for our industry. It's classy. It's the way it should be. And we're honored to be with Rama down there. And as they get bigger and bigger and we go down there and, and we put on a show for 130,000 people, people, you know, slowly are calling us that too. They're like, oh, you guys are selling out your roots or leaving, leaving the triangle behind. No, we're not. We're, we're opening it up to everybody and educating everybody about the wonders of sun-grown and mixed light and all types of can cannabis and the variations. And so it's just... Uh, you know, as you get bigger and bigger, you need to work with successful companies and that's how you can do more for people. So, you know, there's a balance to everything and uh, I'm really pleased and excited to be working with Rama and Green Street moving forward. And the whole team is. Yeah. Yeah, with, with the Green Street, that was another question I have is, is how did this uh, partnership come? I know it was recently announced, I think it was even last, I don't know, the weeks blend together, last week or the week before, I believe. Uh, I'm not quite sure what day it is, what month it is, but it was somewhat in recent history. So how did that, how did that collaboration come to be and how, how long was that kind of in the making? Well, we, like I said, we thought we'd have a, a show in Long Beach. We were one public hearing from being approved in 2019. So we knew we were going to go to LA, uh, but COVID hit and we got shut down for the past two years. Uh, with this last round, uh, Omicron and whatnot, we looked at, we were going to have a t difficult time doing an indoor show. We talked to Rama about using his Green Street facility, the building, but it wasn't really wasn't big enough. But then he said he had this Green Street festival and he uh, graciously invited us in to the festival to do our awards there and participate and activate there and potentially do a long-term deal uh, collaboration and uh, with Gary V and Rama and Josh. And it was just such a natural thing. And we liked them so much that, it was a perfect way to collaborate and move together and move forward, not only this year, but hopefully in the future. And uh, it's going to be a very exciting show and award ceremony, and we're really looking forward to it. Absolutely. And it's interesting to Tim and I live in, uh, we live in Mendocino County. And uh, just in the last year and a half or so, we've spent a lot more time in Los Angeles and have really come to like, enjoy and respect that city for all the beauty and and uh, opportunity that it provides. I mean, I just, I think that's what just really gets us so excited about doing the award show there is introducing a, a potentially a new audience to so many of the sun-grown farmers from Northern California, as well as brands that are, have been a part of the Emerald Cup for a really long time. Yeah, that, that that drive from the mountains down to down to LA is quite quite a trek. I've made it once or twice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is, it is, it is a trek. I tell you, that's the one thing is it's a it's a pretty long drive. Uh, as soon as we get uh, you know all we, all the airplanes together and we can just fly down there faster, because uh, I'm getting older and that that eight nine hour trek is something else. But once you're there, like Taylor said, we've been pleasantly surprised at uh, just what a wonderful city it is in many ways. Uh, you know, the music, uh, the television, film industry, all the media. Uh, there's so, so many cool people down there and so many things going on that uh, in many ways, it's really taken over for San Francisco and the Bay Area for really a kind of a spiritual and artistic renaissance. 
yeah. I mean, you, you see people from all over. Like, L- L.A. isn't a place, you know, L.A.'s got locals, but L.A. is also, one, you know, a hub where people move, people just go to just to be there. It's, it's an eclectic group of a lot of people. Absolutely. When it comes to partnerships and partnering, whether it's cookies or Green Street, what do you guys look for in terms of, like, finding the ideal partners to, to help uh, add to the platform? What, what do those partnerships usually look like? Well, first of all, you know, we're, uh, it's not not about bragging, but, you know, from the very beginning, it was never about money. It was about organic, sustainable farming that we've taught over the years. So we're looking for partners that have integrity, uh, that are there for the right reasons, that are just quality people and quality teams. And uh, Cookie fits that description. Absolutely. Green Street does. Uh, Chang Weisberg, who produced, you know, Rock the Bells for all those years, he's working with us down there. Uh, My manager, Kat Enney. Uh, for me at my age, uh, I've got to work with people that I really respect uh, across the board on all of my teams and uh, people that I like to sit down and, and be successful and enjoy life with. So uh, we're very proud of the partnerships we're putting together. Yeah, and just to add one other um, the idea that came up, Tim, as you were just speaking, was um, even if you look at like a collaboration or a partnership that we've done in the past with Northern Nights, which is another uh, music festival that takes place up in Northern California, they're more like a of a like electronic camping festival, which we like absolutely love. Super honored to work with them because what they bring is a, is a unique perspective on music and and kind of like what the, the finger of the pulse is of, of that community. And so I think that in certain ways, we also look for uh, unique, different voices to partner with um, just to increase the um, enjoyment of all of our attendees. I, I love that. I love that because that's a, definitely something for you guys, like even with this past Harvest Ball, the music, the collaboration of beyond just cannabis. And so that's another question that I actually had. So that's a perfect segue into that is like, what what does it look like when you guys work within these music things and the alignment of cannabis? Does it have to be, you know, some sometimes I think people from the outside looking in pigeonhole, oh, it's got to be like a stoner type artist that makes sense with cannabis. But if you've been going to live music shows for, I mean, I'm sure predating my existence on this earth, you know, that is a, is a congregation and a meeting point where cannabis is consumed at regardless of the artist. And so what do you guys look at in those music partnerships in terms of or being a part of shows is it specific sounds is it cultural movements or is it just where where the right demographics of people are is it just good music what 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 does that kind of go into that well when we first moved to santa rosa uh they they agreed to let us come in as long as we wouldn't do any hip-hop and no electronic and so we had to kind of pigeonhole ourselves into some cali roots style music because of what they were demanding as they got comfortable with us and realized that they could trust us we're able to branch out and uh, bring the hip-hop in bring the edm we like to have you know i love music you know and i love a well-rounded diverse set of music so we really look for a little of everything you'll you know we had some of the wu-tang clan you know performing last year we had uh big wild we had the edm coming in you know we've got you know free creatures some hip-hop live hip-hop on that side you know uh you know uh dirt wire who's doing some kind of country rock stuff so uh it's across the board we love it all and we like to give our our attendees a little bit of everything it's really about finding really cutting edge cool music that's what i've always loved going to concerts and seeing you know i went to a show a long time ago where uh, jay, jay giles was playing and underneath him uh, was a band uh with you two coming out and it's like to to see these bands coming up it's like the i always like seeing those openers so i love to present the audiences with something 
new and unique coming up, you know, across the board diversity. Yes, and music has always been such a big part of the event, um, even going back to the Area 101 days when it was in Laytonville. Um, and at that time, it was more of an all-night party um, because it was at Tim's pro personal property in Laytonville. But um, some of my favorite memories, even with going back to like a throwback, was like Lucas Nelson when he performed at Area 101. Right. And it was like, fun, and it was very, very intimate. And it's just... Um, there's that like trifecta of like cannabis, music, and food. And when you have all three yeah. of those things really work, working together. So, Well, because we, we like to combine. If you go to see my place at Area 101, you'll see these statues, a 1,500-pound uh, Ganesh statue and a life-size marble Christ and a 6,000-pound know, Buddha. And it's about all religions coming together in peace and harmony. So the Emerald Cup coming from there has always been kind of a mixture of, of cannabis and spirituality and psychedelics and organic food and living wellness and so you know like when lucas was up there that year we always do psychedelics from midnight on till the morning and have a survivor's breakfast lucas took his shoes off did psychedelics and party with us all night you know we had heavyweight dub did the same thing they dosed with us about two in the morning and played till six in the morning you know uh vince welnick had the last show really he'd ever performed at up at the cup and so even at my place up there it's you know you're looking for people that really want to fit with us that really want to party and have a good time and, uh, and and just enjoy the whole package. So we're really proud of that and all the things that we've really touted for, not only organic uh, farming, but organic living and the psychedelics and spirituality are all coming to the forefront across the world. So it's really, we're in a perfect place to bring the synergy of all those things into our show. And that was something I, I wanted to touch on too, is that with cannabis being legalized and being a booming industry and you see psychedelics is kind of on the, up, up next it's, it's on you know it's on deck right now warming up to get to the plate in terms of coming out as an industry or being you know they're running a lot of studies of what it could actually help with and provide value in in that 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 community how does it feel um tim to be involved in these communities for so long and they're now coming out of the underground in the dark and they're becoming it's it, you, you know the platform is now for you know not just commercialization but just legalization education you know being able to simply communicate about these without necessarily you know fear of imprisonment. You know it blows my mind. I I, I watched this battle with cannabis for forty years, fifty years, and uh, to see us finally knock those walls down, I thought it would take another ten years for psychedelics to really follow in the footsteps. But because of all that work, uh, it really had broken the walls down so that psychedelics could just come right in there. I mean, cannabis is a, is a gateway herb, but it's not to drugs, it's to psychedelics and plant medicines. And to see it now, uh, what's happening on the West Coast with ayahuasca ceremonies all up and down the West Coast. I had people a year ago come to me and ask me, four different people asked me for 100 pound boxes of, of mushrooms. And I couldn't believe it. And it made me realize what was coming, this microdosing thing and what was coming at people. And there's no stopping it at this point. I'm going to speak at Canadelic in Miami uh, this week and the merging of cannabis and psychedelics and really cannabis and psychedelics have always been merged. It was those private prisons and those mandatory minimum prison sentences back in the 80s where cannabis was tough enough. But if you got busted for acid or mushrooms, you were going to do 15 to 25. So they really put a stamp and a damper on that to hold it back. But I really look at it and I tell people, you know, the DEA and the powers that be did everything they could to keep cannabis and psychedelics down because they took all the manufacturing out of this country. They just about wiped out the middle class and cannabis was the only thing left standing to really supply 
lots of money to the alternative lifestyle and mm. politics and living. And when they write history in the next 20 years, they're going to look at it and see that cannabis really saved this world, was a major part of it. And not only cannabis, but psychedelics now right behind it. And to see the work of John Hopkins, to see the work at Harvard, to see the work at Purdue, coming all over Canada, now Stanford, they're proving so quickly what an incredible benefit psychedelics are for PTSD, depression, uh, mood elevation, just overall you know, health and wellness. So there's no stopping it. And uh, the DEA and everybody look at it. They're all standing back and they're just going to let it go. Although I did see that, that rescheduling of even microdoses into uh, felony, uh, felony levels. So they're, they're still fighting it a little bit. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy, crazy time. And I, I, I you know, I, I haven't seen it near as long as you, but it's crazy how quickly it's happened and how just, you know, to think of the last five to 10 years, even compared to the five to 10 years before that, it's it's a night and day difference of of cannabis being an actual in, you know industry. I put that in air quotes because it's been it's been existing. You know, it's been a, a part of commerce for a long time, but now it's a industry you can get in Forbes magazine for. I guess. You know what? You had a hard yeah. time finding acid or mushrooms from about uh, the early two thousands for about 10, 12 years there, because they put a few people in prison for 20, 30 years, and it really backed people up. But now you can find acid on the street cheap anywhere, quality, good, clean acid. You can find mushrooms. The price of mushrooms since I was asked for those boxes last year went from 1200 for a box down to six or five so the prices have gone down in half because so many people have gone into growing them and you know it's not like cannabis that you need to grow you know mostly in the sun or have the perfect weather people across this country in any mm. warehouse or farm mm. or ba barn can grow them so you're going to see uh, proliferation of psilocybin farms all over this country that are just going to blow up in the next 18 months and uh, which is wonderful you're going to see mushrooms all over the place well, and just to add, I think just like cannabis, I feel like with the development of an industry comes its perks as well. I mean, I think if you think about like everybody has a terrible edible story because they ate a brownie at one time that had no idea how many milligrams in it. And like, I just don't like edibles. And now if you go and you have like a two milligram edible, you're like, that was the best thing I ever had, you know, because mm. it's like, like you actually know what you're getting into when yeah, the same thing goes for, for psychedelics. I mean, I like maybe. Maybe I don't necessarily want to do a hero dose concert. Maybe I just want to do a microdose, you know, and that actually I feel like that microdose option and having the science behind it of knowing exactly what or Mike is in a microdose, I think makes it so much more for the general public. So I think it makes it like less intimidating. Very true, Taylor. I, uh, I'm an old micro or macro doser from way back, but you know, it's been <laughs> really, a, it's been, a yeah, definitely a macro <laughs> doser, but it's been really wonderful to get these, uh, chocolates where you can get, you know, a 10th of a gram to a gram and mm. just take a half a gram and do it. I microdose most days and to be able, be able to do a 10th of a gram or two tenths of a gram and just get that little energy and that happiness and vibe. It really satisfies me. I don't even do large amounts anymore. Like I used to, because I'm so satisfied on smaller amounts. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's a, a byproduct of moving towards the normalization and that education and being able to share these thoughts and ideas and it becoming more mainstream. You know, the moment all of these tech CEOs started talking about microdosing, I feel like that was like, from at least from outside looking in, I think that was one of the things that just helped snowball this because so many people that you know, entrepreneur, work, grind, my, you know, that is so ingrained in just the, you know, the culture of this country. I think when the, 
we saw the captains of that industry, if you will, be like, oh, yeah, we everybody's doing that. Then everybody was like, oh, wait, I think we need to look at this a little differently. Yeah. Did you see Dave Ashby's book? That may, reminds me of Game Changer. Uh, he's Bulletproof Radio and Bulletproof Coffee. And, okay. he, I, and he wrote that book called Game Changer. And that really changed me because he wrote about what makes all these captains of industry who they are, what makes them really superstars. And of course, it was organic you know, eating and it was meditation and it was proper sleep and stress-free diets, all the things you think about. But then he said 90% of them were microdosing. And I was like, wow, even for me, I was like, I would have never thought. Right. And, and that came out, I think Game Changer came out over two years ago. So they knew what was up. Those people were doing that, you know, three, four years ago. Yeah, it's, it's changing. And so another thing I wanted to touch on, obviously, you know, we touched on, on, on the term, you know, sun grown quite a bit. When we look at cannabis, you know, indoor is definitely the kind of the coveted. That's what a lot of people look for when we talk about quality cannabis. But there's a lot of people, especially up in your guys' region, that, that would beg to differ that the sun and the soil of the earth has a lot to do with what makes these plants what they are. What is your guys's take on just sun grown versus mixed light versus indoor? Like what, what's that kind of conversation or thought process on those categories look like for you guys? This could be a, this is a, this is a hot topic because it's, <laughs> it definitely differs from what region of California or the world that you're talking about, but definitely in the Emerald Triangle, it is about sun. Um, actually, we didn't even have an indoor category until this last uh, contest or competition. So um, not that anything is wrong with indoor. We we love indoor as well. It just was more so to bring um, the awareness and the and the and and sun grown to the forefront because I think that sun grown had a very bad rap for a long time. And I'm sure that Tim could go more into detail about that. But I think that what um, last year we did this best of show category which was the first place winner of sun grown the first place winner of indoor and the first place winner of mixed light went head to head and we had the judges pick which of those three was mm. the best and one when we did that tim and i were like should we even do this i mean this could get us in a lot of trouble because if indoor <laughs> wins we're gonna actually probably be in trouble here and so we were like okay we're just gonna do it because if indoor wins it wins it's fair and square you know and so as the judges were picking we were just watching and they were like going back and forth and it was like really close but it was just like the nose of the mixed light was just superior and that's what they were like this is the of those three that was the best one and so mixed light won best of show last year i'm really curious to see what happens this year because the indoor flower sun-grown flower is beautiful they all were stunning um, but i think that there is this it happens when a flower is grown outside or in the full sun or in a hoop um, just the spectrum that the sun offers is something that i think really is unique um, and i think that the quality really shows in the flower then i don't know if we i don't know if we lost tim there Oh no, he was like, I can't talk about this. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> he said, no, I'm cutting out. He might yeah, have got a like call. I'm... Oh, he might have got a call. That might have um, messed up messed up the feed. But no, that that's that's interesting to hear. And I didn't I didn't even know you guys did that. And I could understand the uh the the stress almost looking at that uh in terms of which which one of these components is going to come out but you know so many people are are steadfast in their ways like a lot of indoor growers will say indoor is the, the way a lot of outdoor growers will say outdoor is the way um you know it's definitely unique i think people have different perspectives but i think when you look at you know we, I've, I've had 
I've had people on this podcast before that create LED lights and they are like, basically all you're doing with lighting is trying to recreate the sun. You know, you're not trying to artificial, you're trying to recreate different components of the sun. And so I think there is something truth, something, you know, concrete about what comes from the sun and then also what comes from the soil. You know, that's, oh, Tim's joining back in. Let's see, Tim, we got you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just oh, dropped no it for worry. a second. No worries, no worries. So we were just talking about uh, indoor versus mixed light versus sun grown, and kind of your your take on that uh, on that conversation. Well, when uh, they started busting all the big tie loads back in the eighties, in the eighties, uh, everybody moved up to the triangle. And people forget most of the triangle was indoor. It wasn't sun grown because you couldn't grow out in the full sun and you'd busted. So I grew up, you know, doing hundred light indoor grows. So I didn't have any natural predisposition against indoor at all. Like Taylor said, it was really just advocating because what happened was most people got a bad impression of sun grown because we were growing under the shade out of the sun to pull it off and not get arrested so you were growing stuff that was in you know very restricted sunlight once you could get out in full sun mm. then a sun-grown flower really could compete but there was this uh, predisposition of prejudice against it and so it was like okay let's break that down and really open that up and that was the thought by bringing the indoor in of let's have it go toe to toe like last year we had best to show and it was mixed light that won um now so i don't have anything against indoor at all it was really uh when we went legal uh we should have really brought indoor in a year or two earlier but it was just like okay we brought everything in but indoor and it really needs to be there there's nothing against that we have at all against the indoor farmers it all has its place there's different parts of the country and the world that really don't have the sunlight so they need the indoor i still i mean overall i think that if you're talking about for health benefits and whatnot, I think that a sun-grown flower or a mixed-light flower is going to have a more balanced, uh, you know, well-functioning cannabinoid terpene profile. But you know, we all know people grow some bomb indoor, and there's nothing, you know, nothing wrong with it. And there's some great flowers that come out of that. And uh, I'm looking forward to the competition over the next few years to see who wins the best to show. And uh, I'm sure indoor is going to win it, if not uh, this year and the next year or two. We thought it win last year, so. Uh, you know, it's going to hold its own for sure. And it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And, and I think you guys both mentioned it regionally and how in the method that it's grown has definitely has a, a big impact on it. You know, I, I grew up in Washington where back in the days, you know, we always, our prayer was for a Southern Oregon or a no, Northern California plug, you know, so you're always trying to look for someone in one of those areas. Um, Cause a lot of what we had up there was, you know, grown in like the hops or the wine field. So it's kind of undercovered and just not very good. So it was a lot of brick and seed, seed stuff. But we, we knew, I mean, I knew back then if you got weed from the right, the right area, the right, you know, now I've come to find an Appalachian, I guess is the correct term for it. The right area of Southern Oregon or Northern California, man, you, you could get plugged in with someone that had a, a nice quantity of some great flour. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've seen uh, some phenomenal indoor over the years that uh, nothing to sneeze at. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to having some of the big boys from across the state and the indoor business come in and uh, and come up against that mixed light and uh, have a really wonderful uh, best to show contest. The full spectrum of growing methods. So, you know, for you guys, what, what are some tips that you guys have for for the consumer out there to just things to take into consideration when they're choosing brands that they want to support. It's not about not supporting one or the other, but if people want to support craft farmers, legacy farmers, what are some things that like people can look for into finding 
who these guys are and what are some of the brands and products to try on the rec market. So um, in the state of California, sorry, I, I was unmuting, um, but I just was going to say in the state of California, there is this organization called the Origins Council, and they are um, representing uh, 900 um, farms or farmers in the state of California that are in the different counties that they represent. And so um, they are a uh, an amazing organization that we have been lucky to work with uh, the last year on the Small Farms Initiative. Um, Janine Coleman is amazing. She helped to run our, um, lead our Small Farms Rally that we did at the Harvest Ball. And so, so um, if you check out their website, they have mention about the farms that they represent. And um, that would be one tool or one uh, technique that I would recommend doing for uh, for consumers. And then the other thing with the terpene content, um, just looking at terpene content over THC is um, I think a better indicator of quality. And so just trying to push away from the high THC equals the best mentality because we've just seen it over time and time again in the Emerald Cup competition that the terpene content is truly what distinguishes great cannabis. So, so in your opinion, and I asked a lot of people this because I already have mine, THC percentage doesn't matter. Yes, no, it doesn't. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so I think it's relative though because if it smells really great but doesn't get you high at all, then you're not going to really like that either. Um, it's really interesting because my husband has a super high tolerance and I have like a like a maybe a tolerance we'll just call it that but there are strains that we both really enjoy um and that's when i feel like it kind of gets into that point of it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the highest thc it just has to be a high thc level for your own mm. tolerance level so that you all feel the effect of it but that the terpene content is definitely a far greater indicator i think of quality Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. I just try to, I always try to ask people because I feel like that is just a messaging that, I mean, you ask anyone in this industry, they're going to give an answer similar to that, but it's like the consumer or whatever the market is just like, I don't know, you know, sometimes we're just screaming at a wall. And so I just, anytime I can squeeze the, someone kicking that messaging into these, I, I go for it. man. Well, I appreciate that because it's really through education uh, that we're going to make these changes happen. And uh, so we need, uh, you know, podcasters like you, journalists, uh, all the media coming in, Jimmy Devine, everybody talking about this so we can just open the discussion up and uh, people can really end up finding the right cultivar that's for them rather than, I mean, even for me, it was like OG, OG. And then all of a sudden we started seeing these different types of cultivars come in and it was like, wow, you know, some of these other ones are really, you know, tasty and they give different highs and it's, it's really great. And so uh, it's about the hype and uh, people put that in there. And uh, you can see it, cookies, Skittles, you know, what's the next flavor? But, you know, it's nice to see the evolution and uh, it's nice to see so many people now looking for a unique cultivar to bring on to their brand. And it bodes well for the industry moving forward. Yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, I stand by that. So what is, what is, you know, before I wrap up and get you guys out of here, what, what, what's next? Obviously, the Green Street Festival is coming up here in the spring. What, what, what else is next for, for the Emerald Cup and you guys throughout uh, 2022? Well, uh, we're going to get through Green Street, and uh, hopefully by then, I really believe we're going to be making an announcement for 2023 in L.A. for a very large show uh, that we're talking to people about right now. So uh, 
I promise to keep my mouth shut about that. So, you know, we're really looking forward to talking about that in the future. We also have a couple other deals that we're very excited on our product side uh, to talk about and some collaborations that we're doing. And then we're looking at the possibility of coming back with the, the market in, uh, in Santa Rosa in December for the, for the people to get together for the genetic side and the flowers and whatnot. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff on the horizon for us, a lot of announcements we're going to be making over the coming weeks. And uh, people should stay tuned because we're going to be, you know, really bringing some exciting news for people to hear from. We've been working on a long time, uh, these deals, and uh, they're going to be really something for people to see. And we'll be able to support small farmers and uh, brands across the board and large brands as well. So uh, that's what our mission is, is to support our whole industry. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've been we've been looking at it for a long time, uh, getting these deals done. We have some very, very exciting uh, deals coming into us. And uh, I'd like to talk about them right now. And as soon as we can, we'll come back on and have a have a show to talk about them because uh, they're very relevant to the conversations we had today and uh, where we're going in the future. Uh, we're looking at uh, federal legalization and then having the contest springboard in LA to being a national, you know, competition mm -hmm. and event, and then uh, very soon after an international competition. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to be having entries from all over the world here in the next couple of years. I love it. I love it. Well, keep keep us in the loop how we can best support and and use our platform to amplify. And uh, you know, I know whether it's myself or someone on the team will continually be in attendance at, at some of these events, checking out the community and the new flavors and. Uh, Tim and Taylor, really appreciate you guys taking out the time today to, to hop on here and talk about cannabis, man. Thank you. We really appreciate the uh, offer to come on and what you're doing. And uh, anytime you want to be a guest at one of the events, let us know. We open it up and uh, always take care of the, the uh, podcasters, the media, the influencers, and everybody else. They're really key to our industry. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much. And you guys have a great afternoon and we'll be talking soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is the RMR Podcast, episode 25, talking about the Emerald Cup. We'll see you guys soon.